Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. And we get to all of those at the end of the podcast. Uh, but just once again, to thank you for downloading, subscribing, rating, letting people know about the program. We very much appreciate it. Coming up on this week's uh, show, we're going to be talking about... Uh, an idea I hadn't come across for renewable energy, or at least how to store it. They're called gravity batteries. And if you're someone who listens to the show regularly, you'll know I really struggle with the concept of electricity and even have many times on the program denied the existence of potential energy. Well, you can imagine my surprise when this week we have not only proof of concept for potential energy, but also using it in a practical way. Uh, So uh, it's brilliant. Before uh, we get into the news round, just a note that if you uh, are listening to this before Wednesday, the 16th of November, we have a live show uh, happening in the Grange Gorman campus of TU Dublin. If uh, if you're available Wednesday evening, we would love to see you there to watch our show on Infinite Possibilities. It's the theme of Science Week 2022, uh, and the uh, whole event is sponsored as Science Week is, and the programme by Science Foundation Ireland. Uh, we're going to be asking lots of interesting questions about um, endless things, including... Could you run forever if you had the right stuff stuck to you and ate the right foods? Um, Join us. Newstalk.com forward slash events. Right, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us is Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from the Galway, the University of Galway. I keep messing that up because I've changed it. And uh, from DCU School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Callagher. Jessamine, our first story has to do with missing planets. That's right. And specifically looking at exoplanets, you know, planets in other solar systems and which masses of them are missing. This kind of gets back to one of the really fundamental questions, right, which is how did our solar system form, Uh, which is a really hard question to answer without being able to look at the past. But we can look at other planetary systems at different points in their evolution and kind of say, okay, well, maybe this is this is what might have happened in our solar system. And that's actually part of what's come out of this recent study from Rice University. Um, basically, they uh, ran a bunch of simulations to simulate the first 50 million years of the development of planetary systems. And they were looking to answer a question about the planetary systems outside our own that have already been cataloged, which at this point number over uh, 3,800, which is pretty incredible. Mm. Um, But over that gigantic data set, they found that there are very few planets that have about 1.8 times the mass of Earth and a kind of a weird abundance of planets that have about 1.4 or 2.5 times the mass of Earth. Um, This might seem like a small distinction, but it's kind of noticeable if you're a planetary scientist and you're looking at these large data sets and thinking like, well, why aren't these masses uh, of planet appearing as much as we think they should? So these researchers from Rice did these simulations to kind of show basically the evolution of uh, starting out from just disks of gas and dust around protostars, turning into young planets, um, which start to then crowd each other out, slam into each other, and then eventually result in something like our own solar system or some of these exoplanetary solar systems. One of the things that they found is that these kind of large collisions um, between protoplanets, like the one that we think formed our own moon, are probably very common in young solar systems. Um, and the research also showed actually what has been observed that you know that 1.8 Earth mass uh, ty- type of exoplanet is quite improbable. 
Um, but the two most likely planets to see are basically these these super Earths that are about 50% larger than Earth and these kind of mini Neptunes that are rich in water ice and about 2.5 times larger than Earth. And it kind of explains one of the things that a lot of exoplanet researchers had noticed when they were looking at these uh, otherworldly solar systems is a lot of them looked the same because they had these, you know, similar mass planets. So they'd look at one, think, okay, you know, that's a that's a nice looking solar system, look to the left and see another one just like it and think like, wait, that's weird. You know, have I have I miscalibrated my telescope or what's going on here? It was even called the peas in a pod mystery. Hmm. You know, why are so many of these uh, systems really similar looking? So and- like so like the giants, the Jovian planets, uh, the mm-hmm. uh- Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune, are they rare because they're so large? Well, in a way, they're common because you can also think of them as stars that didn't quite ignite um, and form part of a binary system. Um, and of course, we're we're selfishly interested in the rockier planets because that's what we live on. <laughs> so we'd love to see more of those in space, even though they're harder to spot. Uh, but one of the things that's <laughs> more rocks nice, in space, please. More rocks in space, just not near us. Um, but one thing that's nice about this research as well is that this is providing predictions that then the new James Webb Space Telescope can test. So as we look at more exoplanets, we'll learn more about where we came from. Love it. Uh, okay, our second story, Susan, has to do with autism. Yes, yeah, so there's, um, as you know, a lot of research done worldwide on understanding autism, particularly understanding the molecular pathology um, of the disorder. In other words, you know, what's happening on the molecular level in the brain um, in people who have autism. Do you know, so, I have to say, I had never considered this. Um, I'd never considered thinking about autism, you know, because because when we think about autism, we often think about, uh, you know, how it presents. I, I rarely thought about the molecular mechanisms that might underlie it. So I'm really interested to hear about this and I should yeah, probably I mean, interrupt you. If you, you look at then. other neurological <laughs> disorders like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, I mean, they're all um, molecularly driven, right? And, and medicines can be developed that are on a molecular scale that can um, can change the pathway of that pathology. Yeah. So um, there's an understanding that perhaps something similar can happen with autism. So um one thing that scientists have learned um, in that in the brains of people with autism, certain genes in the, what are called the microglial, the astrocytes, and then neural immune cells are switched on. They're what's called upregulated. And that certain genes in synapses are switched off and they're downregulated. Um, and that's very different than what would be known as a typical brain function. However, to date, most of these studies looking at these types of upregulation and downregulation um, have taken place. The, the studies have looked at the parts of the brain that are at the, the frontal and temporal cortexes. So these are the parts of the brain that would be associated with those very um, traditional traits of people who have autistic tendencies. So like sensory processing or problems with social interaction. Cognitive function. And and- cognitive function, exactly. So like... Work has now been published this week in Nature, which kind of changes the game a little bit because it reports they looked at analysis of many different types um, of of parts of the brain to understand what kind of gene expression was in that area. So they looked at 725 brain samples spanning 11 different areas from 112 post-mortem samples from individuals who have autism or had autism, and they carried out RNA sequencing on them. And they looked at this upregulation and downregulation and they saw that in all 11 areas that they studied, regardless of whether they were areas that would be responsible for the, the traditional traits of people with autism, um, there were changes there. So 
um, not only. So you're saying that um, you're saying that these molecular changes across the entire brain when when yeah. when we're talking about autism. Yeah, I mean, this was around ten years, twelve years work all in. It's a huge study, a lot of work. I mean, to to I guess to get um, cadavers alone that they can study is is a lot of work, and then to actually do all the studying of the upregulation, downregulation. I mean, there's thousands, tens of thousands of genes at work in brain cells at any mm. one time. So there's a lot to study. So they 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 noticed that there were not only you know, changes in the kind of traditional areas of the brain, but in other areas, including um, places that process sort of um, touch and pain and temperature, which wouldn't have been studied traditionally. And that this might tie into um, people with autism who have these maybe sensory hyper um, sensitivities and, and different um, reactions to their environment. So um, right. they believe that this RNA, these changes in the RNA are likely the cause of autism and not a result of it, which is really big because if it's, you know, tied to the genetic side of things rather than just in the nature and environment, then there could be a, a way into sort of um, changing and, and altering sort of the, the genome or the makeup of, of people who are struggling with them. Um, with yeah. you know elements of autistic disorder, I, I suppose any uh, advancement of trying to understand uh, autism uh, is is fantastic, and the idea that we we're getting closer to an understanding of the the underlying mechanisms why it happens is is brilliant. Um, our third story, Jessamine, has to do with the oldest known written sentence. The oldest sentence written in the first alphabet ever, um, which is Canaanite. And what is extremely glamorous about this story is that the sentence was deciphered off of an ivory comb uh, and the content of the sentence makes it very clear what the comb is for. It reads, may this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. So we've discovered (laughs) a 3,700 year old lice comb. Um, It was discovered in Lachish, which is a Canaan city state in the kingdom of Judah, which is now part of Southern Israel. So this was uh, an excavation underway by researchers from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, and they found this they found this object actually a couple of years back. It's only a few inches large, <clears throat> but on one side it has six larger teeth um, or kind of stubs where they think six, six larger teeth were, presumably to comb hair. And then on the other side, 14 smaller teeth. And you know, you see a lot of combs today with, with larger teeth and smaller teeth. So initially they thought nothing really of it. But uh, just last year in December, they kind of realized that there were some very shallow engravings on one side of the comb. And so they started working on translating them um, and indeed found out that this was a head lice comb. Um, And to uh, further bolster this interpretation, they looked at it under a microscope and actually spotted some um, cellular residue from the outer layers of head lice nymphs. So. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you just imagine someone going through your house to try to reconstruct the life that you live, and this is the object that they find. Um, but in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of nice too, right? I think that when we look back at these oldest, um, oldest sentences or oldest iterations of the written word, that they're so prosaic, you know, they're just about the everyday, like this, this is just a comb for lice. Some of the oldest things ever written down were just like lists of livestock that were going to be traded uh, basically accounting. So in a way, you know, I'm glad that Tusk did root out the lice of the hair and the beard. And in, indeed. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's revered this item, which I'm sure at the time it wasn't, um, it wasn't anything particularly prized amongst the, or maybe, well, maybe it was, maybe this invention absolutely changed the comfort of, of presumably men for, uh, for quite 
sometime maybe maybe it was I revered by them got to borrow it every once in a while as well indeed indeed but it is for the beard it is for the beard um so hands off my lice comb uh, Jessica. <laughs> uh susan our final story has to do with bass it's yeah, all about so the bass all about that bass so i um, the first thing i thought about was that fantastic video with greg wallace from master chef where he sings that i love the bass 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 i love the buttery biscuit bass am i alone and I'm not getting a lot of reaction. No, you're on your own. You're on your own. (laughs) Right out out there on your own. It's very catchy. You should definitely look it up. But (laughs) people, I suppose, not only like a good bass on their cheesecake, but also on their dance music. And scientists, I suspect, also fans of music with a strong bass, um, went and actually went to study how much more people would dance if there was a good bass line on a tune. So now, if I said to, to you guys, you know, here's some music and one has, you know, here's one with a bass line that's really good and here's one without a bass line, there's a good chance that you're going to intentionally dance more to the one that has a bass line. You know, we can't let me, people know that they were secretly putting a bass line into the music. So what they did was they set up a concert by the band called Orphix, which is in Canada. They're a Canadian band and this was done in Canada. Um, and they asked concert goers to wear a motion capture headband and turned on and off specialized what's called very low frequency sounds. So these aren't going to be heard by you without you knowing it. So like you don't know that this is being played, played but you, you're, the idea is that you're able to sense it and be able to hear it without intentionally knowing that the bass has been added. So they turned on and off this very low frequency sound every two and a half minutes throughout the 55 minute concert. And they observed that people moved 11.8% more when they had this very low frequency sound in the music and they did this basically by like looking at how exaggerated their movements were um i mean how do you quantify how much people move it's hard but they they looked at understanding sort of how much more they their exaggerated the movements were or how how greater their gestures were when they danced um now this was only on 47 people you know over an hour so there's you know there's a lot to be um you well know, it's it, questioned here but i i really like it as a study because i don't know i like a good baseline well, I like a good baseline too. Um, I also see the value in this because while, you know, you could say it's important to study cancer and, uh, and understand where we came from as a species and search for life on other planets, it's also good to understand what makes a catchy tune. Yes. I mean, less, less important, probably. <laughs> well, like, this I'm just, true. I mean, normally I say, oh, you know, just, just understanding more about the world around us is, you know, that's, that's enough for me. But really this does seem to scrape the bottom of the barrel of utility, I think. Did the researchers say anything about what this might be used for? Um, No, I think it was just, honestly, like the the article just finishes on that note saying, and we think this means that people would dance more to bass lines. So, I mean, (sighs) but I mean, I guess it's, I think, I suppose that the thing that I, that they were trying to stress was the fact that it was this very low frequency. So yeah. it wasn't necessarily that you would hear it. You know, it wasn't that like very obvious. Oh, here's that baseline and off you go. Do you it know was what? like there's an innate the, like human nature to want to move to these sounds. There's you know? always That's there's always where they were leaning. There's always a question. I mean, there's a question behind this. I don't know what that question is, but someone will come up with them some I'm sure and then put it into a funding proposal. Uh, Dr. Susan Keller and uh, Dr. Jessica Fairfield, thanks very much. Before we go to the break, a quick mention of of Come Here Till I Tell You. It's a new Dublin Science Show Festival happening from the 13th to the 20th of November. That is Science Week next week in pubs, clubs and snazzy venues all over the city. Uh, quizzes, game shows, drag acts, fun facts and even a play featuring Jon Snow himself. Go to kamir.ie for more information and tickets at cmere.ie. 
Uh, and also, you'll see Dr. Jasmine Fairfield in Future Ireland uh, on RTE next week. Don't miss that. Now, when you walk out your door today, it might be sunny, it might be windy, the waves may be crashing against the shores with an awesome fierceness, or, you know, none of those things might be happening. And therein lies the fundamental issue with renewable energy, its unpredictability. But one thing that probably won't happen when you go out there this morning is that you won't float off into the air. Gravity is reliably keeping your feet on the ground and will continue to do so for quite some time. So couldn't we use this persistent force in some way to solve our energy problems? Well, our next guest certainly thinks so. She is Senior Test and Simulation Engineer with Gravitricity. Her name is Jill McPherson. Jill, welcome to the programme. Um, I have to say, as soon as I heard the, the, the name for this technology, I was hooked. What is a gravity battery? So a gravity battery uses um, the idea that you can store energy by, um, if you lift a big weight up, then you can store gravitational potential energy in that weight as you lift it. And then if you want to take energy out of that weight, you can then lower it and use the energy as you release it. So the way that we make a gravity battery is that we have a, a big weight that's suspended on some cables that are then attached to a big winch that are driven by electric motors so that when we want to lift the weight, we can drive um, the electric motors to lift up the weight. And then when we want to um, deliver energy and use the energy that we've, that we've stored, we can use the motors as generators to lower the weight. It's, it's actually hilarious because only a few weeks ago I was having a conversation with someone about how could potential energy be a thing? How could something have potential energy? Um, and I didn't understand the concept. And here we are with a concrete example of it uh, being really, really useful. So, so the idea is that we, you winch something up with energy that you have, and then you can slowly release that energy stored in the potential energy of the weight as it falls back down. And you can control the speed at which it falls back down and therefore control the, the, the output of that, that energy and basically modulate how much energy it gives out. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And it's, it's not a crazy idea that's never been used before. Um, pumped hydro schemes, they use the same idea, but instead of using a solid, they use water. What, what's a pumped hydro scheme? So it's, um, you'll probably have seen some around. Um, they use, um, they'll have two reservoirs um, and the, when there's not enough um, energy, they'll um, draw water out of one reservoir to spin a turbine. And then when there's too much energy, they'll sort of use um, pumps to pump the water back up a hill. Um, so that's used on the grid um, already at the moment. If you look at grid watch, you'll see that some power might be being delivered by um, pumped hydro. Yeah, I think there's something like that in Blessington Lakes, if I'm not wrong. Um, so uh, the, the idea then is is very simple in a way, but I have a couple of questions. The first is, mm -hmm. where do we get the energy to lift the, the, the weight? Um, so the energy to lift the weight would be if we had um, surplus power on the grid, um, so on the electrical grid. So if we had too much power being delivered from wind turbines or, you know, in the grid at the moment, if we've got too much power being delivered by, um, say, a coal power plant and the amount of power being used by consumers is lower than what's being delivered, then we'll have too much power on the grid. So we can use that to lift the weight. Right, because that, that energy has to go somewhere. It can be either wasted 
um, or yes. it can be stored in a battery. Now, the batteries that we have are really not great, right? Because my first question is, why don't we just use battery storage and, and then we can release it whenever we want? But but there's problems with battery storage. Yes, if we want to use lithium-ion batteries, then yes, they're great. You know, they're they're in our phones. They can, in electric vehicles, they're, they're powering them. But the problem with them is that um, they've got like a low design life, um, and also lithium is quite a sort of rare earth material, and mining it is quite bad for the environment. So um, globally, there'll be high demands for lithium in the future. So if we can create a energy storage device that doesn't use a massive amount of lithium, then that's going to be great. So if we want to have any practical use of this, we're going to have to have a pretty big weight, right? You've already tested this technology in practice. What what did you do and what did you learn from that, that test? So, yeah, so we had a demonstrator project that was about a quarter the size in terms of power um, as, a, as we want to build for a full-scale system. So that was 250 kilowatts. So that's enough to power 750 homes instantaneously. So when we tested that, um, we were able to show that we can deliver power with a speed of response faster than one second. Um, and we were able to show that we could deliver power whilst meeting grid requirements. And we were able to show that we've got a good efficiency at delivering energy as well. Yes, yeah, so we were able to show the sort of full system operating as we as we wanted to. Um, and when you talk about the sort of how how big it was, then, yeah, we had 50 tonnes of weight on. Um, so 50 tonnes? Yeah. <laughs> that's 50 tons. To, I sound like Tommy yeah. Bow there. 50 tons of weight. How on earth do you lift 50 tons of weight? Well, using lots of heavy machinery. Um, yeah, so we use sort of strong steel cables and actually to get 50 tons into quite a compact shape, we can use this um, material called magnadense, which is a type of um, iron ore. It's very dense. So it's, it's much more dense than concrete. So an equivalent concrete weight would be much bigger. So um, how, how big is this thing then? I mean, like in terms of trucks, like how many how many containers would it be? So the fifty tons was so seven by two meters for the fifty tons. What? That doesn't sound like much at all. Seven by well, what's the other what's the other dimension? Because like seven by two depends on seven by two. Yes, that's but, true. We need one more for volume, don't we? I'm not yes, a mathematician, but yeah. So seven by two meters by what? By about five meters. I. I'm, uh, that sounds tiny here. for 50 tons. Yes, it's very dense material. I'm sort of wanting to go and look at... Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 let's, let's make it easier dimension. for you. When you look at it, how big does it look? What does it look like? Is it the shape of a bathtub? Is it the size of a, a container? Is it the size of a house? It's roughly three times my height and then in sort of length and then in depth, about twice my height and in width, also twice my height. Wow. So, I mean, I, I don't know how tall you are, but I have a rough idea um, <laughs> of how big that is. And that does not sound enormous for, for 50 tonnes. But in terms of the, the mechanism to lift it up, how high does it go? Um, so in the demonstrator, we had a tower that was roughly 15 metres in height. Um, and we used about 10 metres of that. But in the full-scale system, we'd be looking to go underground about 700 to 800 metres deep. This is really, really cool and actually so doable. I'm hugely surprised it hasn't been implemented already. What are the uh, drawbacks of, of this way of storing energy in gravity? So at the moment, we're looking for a site. So um, 
we're looking for existing mine shafts, and at the moment there's not that many in the UK that haven't been backfilled. Um, but there's ones in Europe and South Africa that are just being decommissioned, sort of mining shafts. So there's sort of that challenge to find one um, that's usable and deep and available. And then in parallel, we're looking to drill our own shafts. Um, so we're looking at the ideal situation for a new shaft. That it would be Why can't suitable. you have it on the ground? Our idea is that we sort of store energy underground so then um, we can use the, the earth to hold the weight to provide all the reaction forces that we'd meet, we would need um, instead of building a very strong, big structure to be able to withstand the forces of a 500-ton right. weight going up and down. That makes Other sense. people have different ideas, but our idea is to use um, the geology of the earth to, to hold it. So the, the, the test subject that you used was was not that big but the the larger one is is a an absolute beast 500 tons and a, mm. a shaft of 700 to 900 meters what sort of output would that give you realistically um if if you managed to get the the mechanism working so for the full-scale system we could look to provide instantaneous power to about three to twelve thousand homes um, so it would be one to four megawatts. And then in terms of energy, we would be looking to provide energy for uh, a thousand homes for six hours or a thousand homes for 12 hours. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. A thousand homes for 12 hours just from letting a heavy thing drop. So, I mean, you're talking about an enormous structure. Uh, mm. You know, this is about three times as heavy as a house. Uh, that's what we're talking about, like in terms of the the weight of it and winching it up and down. You'd imagine that, you know, the the strain on uh, the machinery might be uh, difficult enough. I mean, how sustainable is this as as an idea once you have it working? And, and because obviously gravity is limitless, and if we have excess in energy coming off the grid, we're storing it in, in in gravity. There's no lithium batteries to run out. It's a really clever idea. But what about the maintenance and wear and tear to get that lifted up into the air every time you need it? So in terms of wear and tear, um, we predict that um, our, we can design our system for 25 to 50 years design life, which is, is you know a lot more than what we expect lithium-ion machines could deliver. Yeah, we don't expect that there should be a lot of wear and tear um, throughout the whole design life and that, you know, if there's certain components that do wear out, for instance, the cables, and um, that those those components could be um, replaced and the rest of the system sort of um, maintained and operating as normal. So are we likely to see this gravity battery technology implemented anytime soon, do you think? Or is it like many energy solutions 10 years away and potentially a little too late? So, you know, we've made this demonstrator um, machine and then the next step for us is to make a demonstrator of a full-scale system. And we're hoping to, to make that within two years. When you use your own shaft, you're, you're thinking about using multiple weights. What is the benefit of that? So the benefit of using multiple weights is that we could, instead of, if we're using, a, say, a 200-ton weight, we could have 60 of them, which means we can store 60 times the amount of energy. And it means that we can do that whilst using a lifting system that is um, sized in terms of forces and weights just for a 200-ton weight. Right. So that means we get all the benefits of um 
sort of multiple or large weights, but without having to build a system that can hold that size of a weight. Right, that that, that makes sense, that uh, rather than having to pick one and, and having to use all the energy to lift one weight, you can actually uh, gradiate uh, it a little bit. Is it cost effective, this um, investment? Because it sounds like an enormous project. Imperial College did a study and found that our the, the cost of our system for a unit of energy would be less than half of that of lithium lithium ion system. So that would mean it would be particularly sort of attractive for investment. So even though there's maybe some high cost um, or some costs involved with installing the system, then because it's got such a long design life, it makes it attractive or cheaper over the many years of its life. Well, I have to say, I, I haven't heard an idea like this in quite some time. It's made me so quite excited. So really fantastic to speak with you from Gravitricity. That is Jill McPherson. She's Senior Test and Simulation Engineer. Thanks very much, Jill. Thank you. You're welcome. Gravity Batteries. And um, that's Jill McPherson there from uh, Gravitricity. Love to get your thoughts on it. You can email us science at newstalk.com. I have to say, not only is the name cool, Gravity Batteries, but I also really like that concept. Love to get your thoughts on it. You can email science at newstalk.com. Aidan McKelvey, producer of the program, joins me to go through some of your many comments from last week. Why, like, it's like buses, you know, you wait for uh, one and then uh, a bunch of them come at the same time. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'd like to prefer to not consider it a qualitative judgment on our show. <laughs> this time was the first episode where people were like, wow, that was really interesting. I need to comment on it. <laughs> but it is great to get a hell of a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and some of them were good and some of them were bad. Uh, we were talking about a, a way of measuring the amount of animals in a, in a habitat by literally using a hoover to, de- to, to sort of scoop up DNA fragments from the air. And by counting the amount of animal fragments and the number of them, you could get a reasonably good predictor of what sort of animals live in this habitat, which I think is such a cool idea. Uh, but someone texted in a rather clever one saying, but nature abhors a vacuum. I was wondering whether this was going to be in the good or bad categories. Like, no, do not it. dare put this That's in the bad good. category. It's very, very good. Fun. I love a good uncle joke. Um, we uh, were talking about the waggle dance a couple of weeks ago and Joe says, because um, what we found out is, right, the waggle dance for a long time has been thought of as the most amazing thing that what bees do is they find some honey or they find some nectar in a flower like miles away and uh, what they do is they um, they then fly all the way back to the hive and then give a very specific and precise waggle and that waggle of the dance is so good that it can literally be used as a map for other bees to go out and find the honey and then we had um a a guest on who basically said nah that's not really what happens Uh, it's a great idea it's not really what happens and the reason he knew it is because he looked at the waggle dances and he found that not all the waggle dances were even remotely similar and they still managed to find their way to the hive he was like the waggle dance is different but they're going to the same place and so what, 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 what it turns out is that, that they kind of give you a rough guide and then they just follow the first guy. And by doing that, they get to the hive. They get to the, the, the nectar. It's kind of like instead of going like uh, the, the nectar is in uh, parking spot 2B in Liffey Valley Shopping Centre. Yeah. Uh, they actually go, you know, in Liffey Valley Shopping Centre where the Marks and Spencers is, it's somewhere around there. Yeah, exactly. And, and also the first, the, 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 the bees follow the first guy who went out there and he kind of gives them the general direction to get there in the first place. So it's not as amazing as it once was. And Joe says, my wife, who has devoted a lot of time and effort into designing and making resources and lesson plans for teaching primary school children about bees and performance 
performing the Waggle Dance has been putting off listening to this episode for a long time. Fascinating. Uh, look, um, it's still really cool what they do. We won't take it away from bees, but just... They, you know, it's not a GPS coordinate that they give you. It's it's general um, left and right. I still think that it's, yeah, it's cool that they do it through piece. waggling their yeah. bodies in air. Um, someone has uh, texted in and said um, on the hashtag Believe in Science poll in Waterford, he says, uh, nothing to do with anything really, but it struck me with the growing denial and willful ignorance of scientific knowledge and discovery in certain parts of the world. Should your ta- show's tagline not be something like accept the evidence, not believe in science? Just a thought. It, the, the tagline of our show is um, this is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. The, it's the Science Foundation Ireland's tagline that is believe in science. And I guess accept the evidence is a bit dull. <laughs> accept the, it's also a bit authoritarian. I think, you know, uh, so, uh, this show is brought to you by Science Foundation. Ireland accept the evidence I think believe in science although I do know there were conversations about it. they were thinking mm, does it sound a bit mystical I like it I do like it it's like a it, it's like a wondrous like science is wondrous believe in in science and I like it um, but I get I get what you're saying some people might see it as you don't have to believe it it's true Yeah, believe in what it can achieve I suppose. believe it or not if you want it's true yeah. um, Eamon Gavin uh, emailed in and says dear what's your name which I think is already starting off on the wrong foot is it not <laughs> this is going to be lovely isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly I mean you know you're going to the effort of, of writing a reasonably length um, email you might as well google my name I used to think you were very good so like he's listened to the program a couple of times and just I don't I, 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 I feel like I find what's your name, name is loaded <laughs> yeah. I feel he knows my name you used to think the show you we were very good. Always listen to your interesting program. Today you totally spoiled it when you brought in Donald Trump as an insult. I won't bother to repeat here what you said. It's too silly and stupid. That I will plead guilty to <laughs> almost certainly. Whatever it was, I will say yes. That's, that's quite like. Why do you think half of the USA population voted for Donald Trump in the last election? Well, there are numerous reasons for why I think that, and I spent a lot of time doing that. I was actually one of the only broadcasters to live broadcast the election results from uh, Obama's first election in, Amer- in, in America here in Ireland, and I, I went overnight on Spoon 1038 doing continuous broadcast for six hours. So I'm kind of into American politics. Um, and even more, uh, we, 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 sorry, so... Why do you think half the USA population voted for Donald Trump at the last election and even more will do so next time despite broken media and its bias? I'll leave it at that because you are 100% biased and will obviously just form your own opinion from what you have just heard on RTE, News Talk, BBC, etc. Um, well, I form my opinion from reading from lots of different news sources and I do indeed use News Talk, RTE, BBC, The Guardian, CNN, and I tried to use it in the Fox News, but I, I just find it very difficult. Um, and and when, when we talk about bias, um, Eamon, uh, you know, bias implies that you have a certain agenda and it it changes your opinion of things. I have to say, while I didn't like the idea of Donald Trump, I, I didn't write him off in the beginning. He wrote it off. He wrote himself off for me in the many things that he did, uh, including inciting a riot in, in Capitol Hill. Um, uh, uh, he's currently being investigated for, for uh, fraud, uh, setting up um, uh, a various uh, shammy type uh, organizations uh, to try and get money from people. Um, from start to finish, this man is 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 proven to be a liar. Um, and uh, someone who incites hatred. I, I just, th- th- you, don't, you don't need to be biased. The, these are all facts. And so 
I am open to anybody. I'm open to someone being very right wing and and not being like that. Uh, so I, I don't think that's biased, to be honest. I think Donald Trump is objectively an awful person. And I don't say that about almost anybody. Yeah, I'd say we could do a competition if you can find a redeemable human quality in Donald Trump. Please do text in and give us that redeemable human quality. There's a big prize in it for you. I, you know, I, I really, I, I, it, the whole thing it was just such a, it just rocked my understanding of human nature and, and, and this experiment that's still continuing. You know, Lauren Bobart, you know, the things that, um, that are said that are so like, when I was, I told you this story before, like working in Spin 1038, you just gain a huge amount of empathy. Just listening to people's stories as you do on talk radio, which we did for eight years, listening every single day, two hours of talk radio, just getting calls from people. And your, you know, your biases and their ideas, they get knocked out of you very quickly. You get an idea that, you know, people who take drugs aren't necessarily junkies, you know, that, that um, uh, the junkie is, is is a really dehumanizing word when you're talking about someone who's suffering with an addiction and so on and so forth. You actually become really bleeding heart liberal if you do a talk show for quite some time. Well, I do. Not <laughs> Boylan seems to do the opposite. <laughs> but that's, that's Well, I don't think that's controversial. I don't think it's controversial. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, I have to say, I, I, I just... I find it amazing that that people who say really nasty things, who are, are acting in their own self interests, are still being um, voted for in America. But anyway, Eamon says I won't be listening to you for another second, so he's missed all this. I just didn't read that last <laughs> sentence, so he's missed all. Eamon, I'm really sorry to hear that. And look, um, whatever your beliefs, go. Uh, good luck to you. But I hope you enjoy the programs while you stay to listening. All right, um, Jim. Uh, Jim Drog says uh, we're talking about the conservation of energy and talking about this uh, um, this idea of what is um, energy anyway because we talk about it like we all understand it but actually it's it's relatively complex it comes in different forms and don't get me started on electricity anyway Jim says chaps to keep it simple so is it true that if I drive a Tesla car and if it goes flat will the Tesla in front in my friend's driveway go flat or recharge that's not making things simple, Jim. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's like about. a superposition of charges. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like if you've got two Teslas besides one and one loses energy, that means it must go into the other <laughs> Tesla. There's other ways of, of conserving energy that doesn't mean like, you know, it's not like you squeeze a sausage b- balloon uh, one side to the other. Um, there are other ways of losing energy. It doesn't mean that it automatically goes into your next door neighbor's car, but I think you need that. Um, I've got an email in um, from Owen. He's uh, one of the people involved in the Mary Mulvihill Award celebrating uh, science uh, writing, science communication. Um, uh, He says, Hi, Jonathan and team. Just finished listening to your chat with Sean Carroll on energy. Really great stuff. I think you were asking Sean to answer the type of questions many people have around energy. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I felt like an idiot asking some of them. But he says, Having studied physics for the final, uh, for leaving cert at higher level and then going on to study, research, communication and teach science, trying to explain the concept of energy to people is something I've really struggled with. As my studies at third level led me away from physics and into the world of biological sciences, I felt I had a moderate level of understanding of the science behind energy. But the more I've worked with teenagers and the general public i feel that most of us haven't really spent that much time thinking about what energy is and we definitely haven't thought much about the science behind it with the challenges that the planet is facing regarding climate change and how we continue uh, to power the lives we live i wonder if it's time for the topic of energy to become a bigger part of the school curriculum i think it is i think it's pretty big now god any picture i get home from my kids what did you draw at school the end of the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the same thing. <laughs> just charred, charred, charred corpses on uh, a, a, a black uh, 
a black planet great um, ultimately all of our lives are determined by access to energy in one form or another could a greater understanding of what energy is help us tackle the challenges of the future and a more unified approach uh, yeah I mean certainly absolutely being um, uh, less facetious absolutely and um I think, you know, understanding energy systems is really important. But I do think kids get a good bit of that now in school. Um, he says, great work on the show. If this message does happen to get read out, could I say that this year's theme for the Mary Mulvihill Award is energy? Uh, the interview with Sean has lots of really great talking points and ideas around energy, which might make a brilliant media piece for the awards. So if you are involved in uh, writing, um, have a look at the website. It's marymulvihillaward.ie. Niall and Sally Noggin says, Hi, Jonathan. If I were a whale and knew that killer whales attacked my young, I'd do my best to starve my enemy. So this is about altruistic whales. We played um, a piece a couple of weeks ago about a guy, um, a marine biologist, who witnessed uh, humpback whales protecting seals from killer whales. And he was like, why would they do that? They're not humpback whales. Why would they give a damn? And um, we were trying to figure that out. And uh, and he was saying it's not altruism. That there's another reason. The reason is, uh, it you know, one day when they break up a fight, it could be humpback whales. And I was like, wouldn't they, wouldn't they know that? And I just wasn't convinced. I was just... I said to him, why can't you let humpbacks be the superheroes of the sea? But he, he said, that's not how animals work. Uh, well, Nalan Salinogan says, Hi, Jonathan. If I were a whale and knew that killer whales attacked my young, I'd do my best to try to starve my enemy by restricting access to food so that they wouldn't be able to be around when my offspring appeared. Not altruistic, but a clever animal. Also, the enemy of my enemy is a friend. I would like to think that animals can be altruistic, though, especially once their hierarchy of needs have been met. A nice Maslow reference there. That's not a bad idea, actually. We're looking for ideas as to why these humpback whales might do it. And the idea is that they don't want the killer whales to feed that so they might starve. I mean, it seems like a very Machiavellian trait to attach to humpback whales. Let them starve. And yeah, then the cost benefit analysis might come in there because that's a well, lot of work well, to stop the whales from eating altogether. Like, how are you going to? You're not going to be able to stop It also seems like a step further in terms of consciousness planning um, that, than I would have thought. Um, uh, Niall also says, by the way, you were talking about uh, conservation of energy. You can comprehend energy swapping through different dimensions, but not understand electricity. Try putting your hand on a brown cable in your house and hope that you in the other dimension take the whack thanks and keep up the good work I don't think I'll do that don't touch the brain cable folks do not do not do not do you that you can't be sure that the, the you from a different universe is going to get that whack yeah that's it for this week's podcast thanks to Aidan McKelvey producing Simon Keane Steve Daunt and I was going to say Jojo where's Jojo is he, is he still with us he's moved on to Saturday pastures <laughs> <laughs> he's moved on to Saturday pastures <laughs> okay I was going to say he was dead yeah no, okay no, oh, um, it was it's actually Ugo da Silva uh, I don't know where we get our sound engineers but it seems like Latin countries yeah. um, thanks very much to, to Ugo um, and that's it from us we'll see you next Tuesday for uh, more Future Proof podcasts in the Future Proof Extra in the meantime stay curious Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.